This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, everyone. I'm Jenna Siri. I'm a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today we are here with the prolific Stephen Graham Jones. You know him from his many books, Mongrels, The Only Good Indians. Uh, My Heart is a Chainsaw, and now Don't Fear the Reaper. He is a Bram Stoker winner. He is a Shirley Jackson Award winner. He is the winner of many things, including All of Our Hearts, as well as a horde of novels, short stories, novellas. Stephen, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's an honor to talk with you. Thank you. So we now here have the second installment in the Indian Lake Trilogy, um, following My Heart is a Chainsaw. And like any good slasher, the sequel starts with a bang or more of a squelch, I guess you'd say this Mm -hmm. one goes. Um, I'm not going to give any spoilers today. I want to do a spoiler-free read for everyone who I know is waiting on the edge of their seats to read through their fingers on this one. I read this book in a sitting, so I know that everyone out there is going to have a great ride with this one. Nice. Well, man, I wrote it during a sitting. Now I'm lying. So I want to start with probably my favorite part of the book, which is Mm -hmm. Jade Daniels herself. Mm -hmm. I think that so often in horror, we think of horror based on their plots. So we think of haunted house stories, zombie stories, Mm -hmm. werewolf stories. But something so different about your novels is that character is just as important as plot. So tell us a little bit about Jade. You know, Jade doesn't fit in with her family, her community, her school. She doesn't really have a peer group, or she does, but it's a peer group of slasher hounds spread across the world, you know? And luckily, a lot of them found Chainsaw, which is great. Jade is Blackfeet. She's living in Idaho, Proof Rock, Idaho, which is 8,000 feet up the mountain, little small community, 2,500, 3,000 people, maybe, down on a good day when everybody's home from work. People sometimes think, why don't you set it in Colorado? Because I, I live in Colorado. Why don't you set it in Montana? I've known Montana my whole life. You know, why Idaho? And... What I wanted to push there was the idea that um, there's not a single American Indian story. Like it's if we only find stories about Indians set on reservations with like the language sprinkled throughout and you know traditions and all that, you might think that's how you be Indian. But I think Jade is just as Indian. She's long, long ways from home. She has no ties to the community. She's just as Blackfeet as anyone else, I think. I think to say, to say otherwise would be to propose that all those kids who were um, abducted from their homes and adopted out, you know, back when, a few decades ago, that they're not Indian. And that's to me, they're 100% Indian. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be plugged in. It's wonderful to know some words, know some history, all that, but um, it's not necessary. And Jade, early on in her life, at a time when she really needed it, she found the slasher. She found Mario Baba's Bay of Blood, which is kind of a grandfather to the slasher anyways. And she insulated herself with it. She, being not plugged into any of the communities that she could have been, any of the groups she could have been, she was kind of left out in the cold, but she found a way to, to insulate herself. And that's with slashers. And the result of that is she wears slasher goggles. So she sees every interaction through slashers, at least in my heart as a chainsaw she did. And don't fear the reaper, she's come home four years later after the legal kind of fallout of My Heart of the Chainsaw, because I wanted to push that, that, that slashers, slashers, these cycles of violence, they don't reset with each installment, they accumulate, and there is definitely consequences from, from each one. 
but she's what she's dealing with now is she's four years older so she's kind of grown out of that um slasher goggle self that she had in high school and she's plugging back into her community but the community all expects her to be the same as she was the last time i saw her it's it's hard we all know that when we go home after a few years people remember us the way we were and they're like that's how you're going to be for us forever but we need to let people change you know and he's going by jennifer now not jade and she is definitely a lot more grown up than the last time we mm-hmm. saw her. She thinks of things incredibly differently. Did you consider this a coming of age story for her? I know you've talked, mm-hmm. you've had coming of age stories before. I mean, Mongrels yeah. is a huge coming of age story. Um, even in Only Good Indians, you have Denora's coming of age story at the mm-hmm. end. Do you think that that's an important piece of this? I think it's a really important piece. And I think that coming of age was not limited to my heart as a chainsaw. I think it's a process that continues throughout all three books of the trilogy and you know we call it coming of age but it's really kind of a like a i don't know a ritual that you go through to go to your next stage of maturation or just your next place it doesn't even have to be higher just the next place but you know i really think the slasher is built specifically for that people always wonder why aren't the slashers um coming at the 40 year olds you know and i think that the reason the slasher activates the best around high schoolers is because high schoolers are at that point in their life where they're about to change into something else. And the slasher can distill, exaggerate, and express that feeling of change so much faster than if you tell it without that. You know, it's like a, a horror adventure like a slasher. It's like a transformation changer, transformation chamber or an acceleration chamber. You know, you get on it and boom, you have to become what you're going to be or you don't live. Right. And she certainly becomes... Someone strong, someone fierce. She never mm-hmm. loses that humor. She never loses her view mm-hmm. on the world, but she definitely finds her footing. Would you, I mean, in the first book, she doesn't consider herself a final girl at all. You know, mm-hmm. she's ready to give that up to someone else. But, you know, towards the end of My Heart is a Chainsaw, you see her sort of realize what she needs to do. And this just continues. Do mm-hmm. you consider Jade a final girl? Do you think she subverts the final girl? I think I do consider her a final girl. And I do think she is subverting like the perfect warrior angel princess model of the final girl, which is really hard to identify with. Like final girls and slashers are supposed to teach us how to push back against bullies to insist upon our own value. But um, when the final girl gets too difficult of a space for us to occupy, if the final girl has been idealized to the point where we can't enter into that, that space, that identity, then the final girl has lost her usefulness. So Jade doesn't see herself as fitting the mold, the model of a final girl. But yes, at the end of My Heart the Chainsaw, because she's the only one left standing, she's like, I better fill in, you know, and, and she has that heart. And that's what you need. Final girls are on the inside, not the outside. And and then in Don't Fear the Reaper, she no longer has that desire to kind of put the final girl up on a pedestal. She understands the cost of, like, she used to pray at the altar of Craven and Carpenter and beg them to send the savage angel down these slashers because she needed some justice in her life but now she knows the price that that exacts on people close to her on her community and she no longer wants a slasher to happen but a slasher may be happening around her all the same and she has to react accordingly i think that's interesting what you said that it, it accumulates rather than you know just each individual moment happening so often in the in you know slasher movies you don't see what happens in between you know yeah Halloween's one and two. You don't see that community um, dealing with the aftermath. And I think that is a very uh, important piece that you can get in a horror novel that you're never going to see in that slasher film. Yeah. And and when you go from um, 
iteration to iteration or sequel to sequel of a slasher through a franchise, the characters generally don't have to deal with the trauma. You know, sometimes it's because they're all dead and we have a new group of people, but you don't really see the community dealing with the trauma. And I think even if a slasher just happens once in your community, that is going to be um, like a burl in the wood that everything has to grow around and accommodate. When you were writing this story, which came first, Jade herself or the story you wanted to tell? You know, the, I wrote um, the first early, early proto draft of My Heart is a Chainsaw in 2013. It was called Lake Exodus Only. And it was told from the voice or with the voice of a what do you call it a greek, a greek chorus a royal first person a we instead of an i and it turned out and you finally realized that the voice isn't a chorus it's one kid in an iron mask who has uh, so many parents and he considers himself plural instead of singular and jade was not there at all there was a version of party he had a different name indian lake was there proof was there i think terra nova was there so a lot of the elements were in place but jade was not there Jade did not show up until I put the novel on a shelf because I wasn't working. And I came back to it at the very end of 2017 or maybe early 2018 and rewrote it from the ground up. And I realized I needed an, I needed a different angle because the big reveal of this kid in the iron mask wasn't working, I didn't think. It was really just me trying to emulate the cover of Quiet Riot's Metal, Metal Health, you know, <laughs> which I love. But um I don't think that's really a great reason to write a novel either. So, yeah. and also, and also, that first version was really dependent on a certain kind of turtle I made up. And I don't know, if, I don't know if people, I don't know if people want to follow me into the biological wilds like that. The, <laughs> evolu- the evolutionary, you know, randomness that can not randomness, the evolutionary, the natural selection that can lead to this type of turtle. Anyways, turtles are gone now. I don't know if there's any turtles in these trilogy whatsoever. And Jade showed up, and in her very first um, instance, she was writing a book on all this and then that fell away and there was various other versions of jade across like a year and a half when i was finally getting getting it done but there's a there's actually a version of lake access only which was my heart's chainsaw that letha told a third of it hardy hardy told a third of it and jade told a third of it which was really fun but it was people kept getting sad when we leave jade my readers would say well i liked it as long as she was there and then when she wasn't there people got bored so i realized that jade has to be the center I mean, I think that makes sense. I think there's something so particular about her view of her knowledge that allows you into the story more deeply than uh, if you were being told it was being told from the outside. I think yeah. for the horror initiated, her commentary makes everything so much more fun. But for those readers who maybe aren't as familiar with slasher films, I think it really allows you to deepen that experience right off the bat. Yeah, that's a good point. And and Jade, she does kind of hold your hand and lead you into Slasherland, but um, you can't totally trust her either. You know, she'll squeeze she'll squeeze your hand pretty hard and she'll set you up for a scare. You know, and she does for those around her as well. I mean, I think mm-hmm. another important part is the cast of characters in Proof Rock is mm-hmm. eclectic. It is mm-hmm. interesting, and I'm from I used to live in like a smaller town area. I, used, mm-hmm. I, I went to college near Fargo, and mm-hmm. so. That it has some of those same vibes where the community shapes you and you shape the community right back. Yeah. And I feel like you see that in in the cast of characters outside of Jade. Oh, great. Great. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you very much. That's very cool. Yeah, I grew up in a lot of small towns. So I guess that dynamic of everyone here has known you since you were in preschool. And I know every secret about you. And 
no matter how much you grow up, they're still going to say, oh, you're the kid who did that on the recess in second grade. You can't ever escape that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think Jade feels that. I mean, she mm-hmm. is constantly bucking against her circumstances and yet yeah. wants to live right in that as well, too. Yeah. As far as your other cast of characters comes, I just have to ask about the names because your mm-hmm. names of your characters are, you know, pretty great from Letha <laughs> to um, Bear Sherlock yeah. Holmes to yeah. the incredible name of Dark Mill South. So I just need to know how you get those names. <laughs> well, Mr. Holmes, he started out as just Mr. Holmes. And then Jade joked around and called him, called him Sherlock at one point. I don't know if that's still in the text or not. And and then um, I needed to bring, I needed to remind my readers that bears are in this area. So he got the bear name. And I had to come up with a front name for him, which turned out to be Grady. It kind of surprised me. I knew it was going to be Grady. Maybe, I guess I did know Grady Hendricks by then. And I guess he, he's the only Grady I know, so it must have been him. And, um, but Letha, Letha Mondragon, in junior high, I went to, I had a classmate. Her name was Mondragon. And then in high school for about a semester, I knew someone named Letha. And I was always so impressed by their names. And so I just added them, I added them together to get Letha Mondragon. But it's funny, I've heard some people pronounce it Letha, which always freaks me out. I should have put like a long E sign over the E or something. <laughs> I think that you get it from the nicknames that people use from her in yeah. there. I mean, the character of Dark Mill South himself is, you know, people will come to know from Don't Fear the Reaper. But that mm-hmm. um, sort of takes over a lot of what was so interesting about this book. It's a oh, different, different tone, a different feeling from the first one. And I think mm-hmm. it really really brings a lot. So how did he enter the story? You know, um, how his name came about was uh, forever I've known the Jerry Reed song, Amos Moses. And there's a point in Amos Moses where the line is, Doc Millsap, like Dr. Millsap, had a child who could eat up his weight in groceries. And my whole life I've misheard that as Dark Millsap, not Doc Millsap. And so that's just where the name came from. But you'll notice on Dark Millsap's birth certificate, he's DM South because I had to ask myself, who's going to name their kid Dark? You know, that's, that's, a pretty, that's not the best thing to do to a kid. Um, even if you're not a great parent, you still don't name your kid Dark, I don't, I don't think. And so I feel like Dark is a name he picked up probably in his adolescence, you know, when when we all want to have like a cool goth name or something. And But as for himself, I was interested in the way America turns its serial killers into like, um, I don't know, legendary characters or something i guess they get mediated so heavily that we don't even consider them real they're like they're like kind of like the big bad wolf in a red riding hood story or something and we kind of celebrate them which is such an odd dynamic i think as for his like physical appearance the reason he has a hook hand is i want to dial back to the um the old hook hand stories from lover's lane from what the late 50s early 60s you know because a lot of people say that's where the slasher started. I think the slasher starts earlier, but but that is definitely a place where it catalyzed and got a little bit, a little bit codified. So I thought I better I should probably make a nod to that. And his stature, he's a big dude. He's six 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 seven, uh, long hair, really really tough. The trick is when you're kind of setting up a novel with a protagonist and an antagonist, it's always really important that the antagonist be more capable than the protagonist because then. If the protagonist, the hero, the final girl, is able to overcome, then it's not via muscles, it's via 
our smart monkey brains. You know, you don't you don't mm-hmm. like if you're fighting if you're fighting a dinosaur in a story, you don't kill it by biting harder than the Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, you kill it by right. luring it into a chasm or something. And yes. I, I really like like Nancy Thompson on Nightmare on Elm Street. I love how she thinks her way through the end and survives, which mm-hmm. doesn't cash in any of her identity. She's able to stay Nancy, but she just uses her brain. And to tell you the truth, most final girls don't. Most final girls adopt the slasher's characteristics of who can swing a machete harder, and that's how they win the day. Right. But um, I like how Nancy thinks. I appreciate that a lot. I agree. I think, I mean, I, when I was reading the, the book, I was putting mm-hmm. myself in Jade's shoes, and I think mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I'd be able to think my way out of a situation when that person is standing yeah. in front of you. Oh, man, for sure. And <laughs> Jade also thinks her way out of the confrontation at the end of My Heart is a Chainsaw with Stacey Gray. She, like, puts together the pieces she has of how this legendary character works, and she realizes what she has to do to beat it. Yeah. She's she's got a, an encyclopedic knowledge of things that can get her out of a bind. Yeah. As far as characters go, I just my one question on craft for you in this is: Do you no. know your characters' fates when you start, or no. does it come to you as it happens? It comes to me as well as it happens, and kind of as it's needed. Like an example of that would be Banner from in the first book. He's just an annoying high schooler. You know, mm-hmm. we, we don't like we don't like the things he says in class. We don't like his person, his character. In the second one, he's he's growing up some. It's just as just just as it's four years later for Jane, it's four years four years later for Banner. And due to the um the big showdown at the end of Chainsaw, he kind of had a moment of growth or awareness or self-awareness as well. And I think he changed into a different person a little bit. He grew up. And we see him now, he has some responsibilities and some duties and he cares about things, you know, in high school. He just wanted to play football and go on dates with girls. That's all he wanted, you know, but he's a different person now. And I think that's important that we let people change. Like I say that Jade's issue is she's coming home and everybody expects her to, everyone expects her to be the same, the same as she was when she was 17, which none of us are. We don't really like our 17 year old selves generally. The same way the community of Proof Rock should let Jade change. We as readers, I think, should hopefully let Banner grow up and change too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in this book where you need to call back to mm-hmm. the characters you knew in Chainsaw and, and reformulate what you were thinking and reformulate yeah. what you think of Proofrock as a whole because yeah. the, the town itself is very different than it was at the mm-hmm. end of Chainsaw. And I think yeah. in this setting, the city of Proofrock is the town of Proofrock is almost a character itself. It plays its yeah. own role in in the story. Totally. You're totally right. Um, you know, I never realized that, I mean, how... I think when was this? This would have been 2017, I think it was actually. Um, I had come off Mongrels and Mapping the Interior and I wrote this big crime novel, Texas is Burning. It's, and it, I wanted to set it against the backdrop, like a Kafka backdrop or a Jewel versus Volcano backdrop, where it's just like a gray, desolate city that is nameless, featureless. It's just like a background on a stage. You know, I wanted that kind of nameless, featureless place. But then about 115, 120 pages into it, it started feeling like I was pushing a boulder uphill. And that's never how novels are for me. Novels are, I'm sitting on the boulder and we're rolling down a hill and I'm just trying to hold on and not die. You know, that's how that's how writing should be, I think. And I was like, what is going on here? Have I lost something? And I didn't know what to do. And I got invited to a book festival and it was in my hometown of Midland, Texas. And I went down there and I'm being chaperoned away from this venue to that venue, you know, all over the weekend. And I started looking around from the back seats of those cars and I saw the buildings and the, the roads and the people of Midland, Texas, my home. And I realized this is the backdrop. And so I went back to that novel, started it over again, told it with Midland as a backdrop, and it just told itself. It was like riding a boulder downhill. And it was amazing and wonderful. And 
I never considered myself a place writer, but now I understand that place is not just a character, it may be the essential character. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we have a bit of a T.S. Eliot nod in the mm-hmm. uh, in the yeah. title, in the name itself, so yeah. Yeah. that sets it up. I mean, even yeah. the two parts of the word proof and rock, I think, are very mm-hmm. an interesting combo there. But in, in mm-hmm. many ways, it's the perfect slasher setup, right? You've got, you know, your small town, you've got a suspicious summer camp, you've got a new housing development with outsiders coming in. Did you see all these pieces coming together and need all of them in order to formulate your mm. your slasher setting you know in retrospect i understand how necessary they were i wish i could say i was strategic enough <laughs> of, to have conceptualized it all from the get-go but it really <laughs> took me a lot of a lot of drafts to figure it out um you know and i said i wrote that first version in 2013 in that first version the kid in the iron mask telling his story with the we instead of the i he is a son of terra nova he lives over in terra nova and i think terra nova was an island at the time not a not a shore so yeah it just all came together and it's almost like through the drafts, I would keep the part that worked and throw away the other things and keep the next part that worked. And through drafting it so long, I eventually had a lot of working parts. It's like Terra Nova and Play Frog play against each other well, and Indian Lake is wonderful to try to cross and not cross. And Glen Dam is a blast. Camp Blood is a blast. Um, High Mountain, Idaho is really fun. And you're right, small town, mountain town, that does give you so many options for isolation. And isolation is always key for the slasher because if this is happening in the camera's eye, if a lot of people are watching, then how can it continue? You know, like I remember in, what is it, cheerleader camp, um, people start dying and they just, they keep putting kids in the freezer or something. I'm like, is it, you know, I don't know about that. You know? Well, sometimes necessity, you know, is the mother of all invention, right? You have to, you have to do what you have to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes when you're in a small town, you don't have a lot of options. Well, you got one yeah. doctor. And- yeah. The town itself, I mean, it takes on sort of a life of its own, I think, in this one. Mm-hmm. Was it decisive to make it sort of not a real city, but more something that you had a lot more control over and people wouldn't have their own ideas coming in? It was. Well, it was, num- it was important that it actually feel like a small town in 8,000 feet up the mountain in Idaho. I had to get that at least close to right, you know? And mm-hmm. I've, lived, I've lived in a lot of small towns, so that was not that difficult. And I, I, I live at elevation as well, so that wasn't that difficult. The reason I made it up, number one, you're right, because I wanted to do that nod to Jager Proof Rock, of course. <laughs> but number, but proof, proof Rock for a mining community, this seems like the perfect name to me as well, you know. And I made it up. Yeah, you're right, because I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to just feel like a, um, like it was all clay, so so that when I needed to, I could move this over here and move that over there. But I also had to be aware, and Chainsaw didn't have to be aware of this, and Don't Fear the Reaper, I did that. I put the post office here, so it's got to be there. It can't move around. You know, what I had to do when I was writing Don't Fear the Reaper, I had to go back and listen to Kara G's amazing voice acting on My Heart is a Chainsaw and take a copious notes about it takes us long to get from here to there. And this is north of that and that's south of that. And, you know, all those things. I had to draw an actual map. So maybe I'm a fantasy writer now. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Next next installment's going to have a big map with the with dots in the dollar store yeah, and Melanie's yeah. bench, everything oh, there. That, all of it. And it's even going to have um, like, three of characters and relations <laughs> perfect i think i think the fans will love it i mean it's a very hyper stylized feeling you feel like you're mm. in that slasher movie which in comparison to um the settings mm. in only good indians which are sober and you know stark it sort mm. of definitely creates the tone oh good of good rolling around in a pool yeah. of blood in that slasher yeah. movie also, in Don't Fear the Reaper, since um, My Heart is a Chainsaw was in the height of summer, 
I thought I gotta go. I can't do the same thing again. So this one is in the depths of winter. It's like a snow furnace, and it does a lot of damage. All this cold. Yes, and I, someone who lives who lived in northern Minnesota and North Dakota, oh, you wow. got it. I felt it. I, yeah. I knew those so, moments. So you know the true cold. Like I've, I've I've talked to people who move to Minnesota from Alaska, and they go back home because they're like, it's too cold here. You know. Yeah, I I <laughs> I felt those moments where you know they're wow. crossing the lake and they can't feel their hands, feet, anything. Yeah. Yeah. You got it right there. Wow, oh, thank you, thank you. So sort of pivoting off of setting as a as a piece in only good Indians. It's a very different tone. It's a very different story. It's based on the idea of tradition and how our past comes back. And sometimes you can go home, sometimes you can't, and sometimes you shouldn't. How is that a different feeling when you're writing more for tradition and to incorporate those aspects? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, only good Indians and Chainsaw and Reaper, they're all slashers, so they have that in common anyways, but that's probably just because of me, because I love slashers, so I try to make everything a slasher. Even my 2012 novel, Growing Up Dead in Texas, which is, people consider it a memoir, it's not a memoir, but it does have my life all through it, that's even to me a slasher, you know, I just, I think the slasher model or dynamic is something that, um, well, I know it so intimately that I can vary, do a lot of variations on it, you know, like mm-hmm. Night of the Mannequins, Last Phone Girl, Demon Theory, all these other books. The trick is, when Only Indians came out and did what it did, a lot of people reading it, um, I heard people calling it, what do they call it, social criticism fiction, something like that, you know, and and I was like, great, people are like, yeah, I, I think we go into every story with access to grind, um, you know, political, social, financial, whatever it is, and through the scenes and through the storytelling, we find a way to grind those axes. But um, and that, I, I guess a lot of that came out in Millie Good Indians. But I was really nervous that people might start to try reading me as some sort of social criticism writer. And I don't, I don't want to be that. I want to be somebody who does have my resentment and hostilities and things I champion and all that. We all have that. We can't help it. I want, I mean, and that's always going to find its way into my fiction. Everything we do is political, but I never want to be like polemical. I think that's the danger. Like you can shade over from being political to being polemical. And that's, that's when you kind of metastasize into something weird that people don't even pay attention to for good reason. I knew that with the, with my heart as a chainsaw, I had to um, take a different angle, you know, but I still want to talk about a lot of the same things. I want to talk about the um, treatment of Indians over the past 500 years, for sure. And, you know, I never realized with my heart as a chainsaw until I turned it in. Like when I turned my novels into my editor, Joe Monty at Saga, he usually sends me a message back and says, oh, it's about this, it's about that. And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. Because I don't have any idea what they're about. I just write them, you know. And um, He wrote me back about my heart as a chainsaw and he said, hey, a novel about gentrification. And so I tabbed over to make sure I understood what gentrification was, you know. <laughs> but, um, but he's right. But gentrification, like on a, in a little community, this kind of colonization is gentrification. But on a continent level, it's all the settlers coming across from Europe to steal our lands and kill us and all that stuff. It's no accident that Turner was called what what people used to call America, the new world. You know, it, was, it wasn't that new to us, but it, it was new to a lot of people anyways. Yes. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I've, I've managed, I think, or I hope to, to grind all those same axes I'm always grinding and maybe find some new ones. Also, hopefully I did it in a way that doesn't get me labeled as someone who has a checklist of things they want to accomplish politically, socially, whatever, right. ideologically. But there is now a growing sort of cohort of authors writing in this sort of subgenre of 
indigenous yeah. fiction of of oh, indigenous yeah. horror of native horror i think is yeah. definitely i mean you've got erica t worth you've got um sherry dimeline you've got yeah. you know shane hawk andrea rogers yeah there's a lot of people yeah, doing Jessica it Johns, it's yeah. it's really a um a movement it's a i think it goes into how how do we choose who tells what story yeah. and yeah. i mean it yeah. seems like your stories find you when they find you um mm. but does this genre, do you feel that horror itself allows you to go outside the bounds of white storytelling, of Western storytelling in a way that other genres don't? Yeah, that's a good question. I do think that because I am using the novel as my delivery method, that in the novel is a Western form, I think I probably am, am locked into some sort of like eschatological thing, build climax and then like a revelations at the end, you know, that's kind of what eschatological mm-hmm. means as I understand it. Um, so I think I am locked into that to a certain extent. And also, I mean, in a smaller sense, I say eschatological, that just, that's really like Joseph Campbell's monomyth, just stretched up into a screenplay format outline thing, you know, and into beats. I don't think I can escape that. I don't know if I want to escape that either, to tell you the truth. I think when you're doing written fiction, that it doesn't hurt to use conventions that the reader is already conditioned to know. And also, I should say, I am conditioned on those conventions. As for the characteristics of oral storytelling, I know it, but I don't think I'm, I don't know if I know it intimately enough to replicate it or express it or render it. You know, maybe I've, I've tried before in some of my novels for small sections and it's really fun. As for how to make that be a whole long narrative, a novel, that'd be tricky. And I'm interested in trying too, of course. I think I'll probably always be in the Western novel tradition, I think. I mean, I think that now it's sort of horror is growing as a genre in general. Yeah. I think especially yeah. horror writing is sort of ballooning in this. Maybe it's just because the world we're living in is a little horrifying. So people yeah. are yeah. looking to identify there. But and I'm not sure. I Do you consider your work elevated horror or literary horror? I don't know if I, I agree with those terms, but yeah. I see that thrown around a lot. And I wonder if you have a thought on yeah. that. Yeah, I always I try to resist those terms whenever I can, just because I always feel like when somebody says this is elevated horror, they're in the same breath dismissing all the other horror, kind of insulting all the rest of the horror. Right. Like, look at look at that unelevated horror over there on the ground. <laughs> you know, this is actually much better. I think when people say elevated horror, what they mean is, I like this. I'm not a horror fan, but this must be different. And because because I don't like horror, yeah, I like this. It must be a different kind of horror. You know, and. It's just too bad that the the kind of hierarchical language that they've utilized to say they like this um, is insulting the rest of the genre, you know? Right. Sometimes we want pulpy. Sometimes we want the schlocky horror. And I don't think one negates the other, I think. I mean, if you in the Indian Lake trilogy, you've got both. You've got breathtaking passages with descriptions that you could find in any literary fiction novel. And then you've got people's insides coming out. Thank you very much. Yeah. That's always been my goal. I, I've, I've always wanted to have a foot, not just on each side of the fence, but in all the pastures, you know, which is like straddling 18 fences. I don't know how you do that with two legs, but um, yeah, I never wanted to be um, pinned in. You know, I'm, I've always been quite nervous about people calling me this or that kind of writer. I do consider myself a writer who writes almost exclusively horror, but uh, I guess two or three days ago, I wrote a literary story. So I just happened to do it. I think anytime you let the market or the critical establishment put an adjective in front of your name, like Native American writer or horror writer, that's just letting them put a handle on you so they can pick you up and put you on a shelf and forget about you. You know, I think if you can just be a writer, then that's what you want to be. Like, really, you know, I remember back in 02, 
I was down in Austin on a Conan the Barbarian panel with Joe Lansdale, Joe R. Lansdale, amazing writer and good friend. And someone asked him in the question and answer period, Joe, what genre do you write in? And he didn't even skip a beat. He said, I write in the Joe R. Lansdale genre next. And I'm and I realized, whoa, that is my goal. I want to write in whatever genre I want to write. And the only like thing that makes it all clear together is hopefully the intent that I put into it or the quality of the work or something like that. But I'm, I want to write in the Stephen Graham Jones genre. That's my, my goal. I think you're think you're doing it. I oh, thank I, you. Thank I you. sensed a lot of things in these books where, you know, I you don't find them in the other novels, the other horror novels that are out there right now. Where do you see horror going as a genre? As it becomes maybe more mainstream in literature, as it hits yeah. more readers, where where would you like to uh, see it go? That's a good question. Yeah, like I think part of horror's like identity has always been we band together because we're all outsiders. We're all outside the fence, outside the light. And so we, we hang out together and we're like, you know, we're rejects from there, but we're together now. You know, I think we definitely feel that. And so there, I think there is a little bit of danger with being asked into the dance. You know, we're used to looking through slats in the wall to see the people dance and we're not used to being on the dance floor. We haven't been since the late 80s, probably. But yeah, there's this recent like rise in the popularity or the acceptance of horror I feel like it started with like Jordan Peele's Get Out in 2016 and then Victor Baval's Belt of Light Tom, maybe that was 2017. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that was like a one-two punch that alerted the audience that we're not just a weird nightmare carnival way out there at the edge that you don't have to pay attention to. We are actually, horror is in dialogue with the social, political issues of the day, and we always have been. We're, we're not just having fun with blood gags and scaring each other. We are actually doing important work. We're sometimes functioning as a funhouse mirror for the anxieties of our time, or we're helping people process through their own trauma. We're doing a lot. Horror does a whole lot of stuff. Right. And so far, the audience has not kicked that. They still subscribe to it. They're, they're, they're believing it for the moment. And I think that has done a lot to contribute to horror's rise these past few years. And then, of course, you factor in the pandemic. And number one, people wanted to read during the pandemic. Number two, they need to believe in the fact that there's light at the end of this long, dark tunnel we're all walking through. And horror, that's what horror does for us. Horror mm-hmm. stories are a long, dark, scary tunnel. You hear sounds you don't want to hear. You see things that are going to stick in your head. But if you keep putting one foot after the other, that speck of light at the end is going to grow a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And one day you step out into daylight. Horror gives us the assurance that there will be an end of some sort. I agree. I mean, I know that I found myself reaching for horror books, horror movies during those unsettling months. And some people would say, don't you want to just watch feel good things? Don't you just want to feel better? And sometimes what makes you feel better is the, the knowing that you can overcome things that no one would think you could. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of your horror influences? Obviously slasher films, but Mm -hmm. if we had someone who's never seen a slasher movie, where should they start? Or even some of your deep cut faves? I know I always say my starting point is the Carpenter Halloweens. That's one of my favorite places to start. And then I always try to get people to watch It Follows. That's one of my my go-to. Oh, it's so good. You know, some people resist that movie being a slasher, but I think it's 100% a slasher. You know, the same way Fallen Destination was a slasher too, and you never see death, you know, and, and it right. follows, you have this 
whatever it is that can inhabit different walking people or express itself as different people. And yeah, I think it's hundred percent a slasher. And I think that is a wonderful milestone to hit when educating someone about the slasher. I would say start with, yeah, I agree with you. 78 Halloween, John Carpenter, Deborah Hill. That's a wonderful, that, that's where the slasher got codified. And it started out with like, um, well, who knows, maybe it started with Beowulf back then, but in the 20th century, you hit um, Peeping Tom and Psycho in 1960, and then you move forward a little bit, and the Italians are doing the Giallo. The Giallo has these masked killers, the masks around their hands, their gloves, and the camera angles. The Giallo grows up and changes and gives us a lot of wonderful characteristics, and then you have something like um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre that'll give us even more. It's not a slasher, but it has a lot of slasher characteristics, and then Black Christmas 2 will add up, and then it all finally gets codified in Halloween, and after that, the golden age hits and it lasts until the mid 80s and we get just a glut of slashers not all of them wonderful but um, all of them contributing to the strange dna of this genre and the slasher dies and comes back with scream in 96 kevin williamson west craven goes on for about five years we have a really nice neo slasher boom and then in the like late 2000s like what is it 2008 or so you start getting stuff like Tucker and Dale versus Evil or Behind the Mask, the Leslie Graham story. And you get these different takes on slashers and it finally leads up to Happy Death Day and Freaky and all these all these ones that they're doing such wildly different things with the same basic build. And that just proves us that there's endless variation within the slasher dynamic and we can keep going on in the future and we're not going to run out of ideas anytime soon. And the conventions aren't tired and the audience is not feeling fatigued. And I hope we last forever. You know? Right. Lori Strode's still out there. She is. She is. So you think there's a bright future for slashers? We're not going to see them fade away yeah. as this year's go I on? Think, I think the slasher will always be with us. It won't always be the hot horror subgenre. Mm-hmm. But as long as we live in a world that is basically unfair, then we're going to keep subscribing to justice fantasies. And that's what the, that's what the slasher is. It's a justice fantasy. It lets us, for a couple hours or 300 pages or whatever, it lets us believe in a world where people who do wrong are punished. And I'm not talking about wrong being drug, drinking, sex. That's not what the slasher punishes. The slasher punishes a lack of compassion, you know? Um, so many of the pranks that cause this cycle of violence to start, that cause this avenging angel to rise, are crimes of no compassion. It's it's a group of entitled people picking on someone who is less for- fortunate than them, then it goes wrong somebody dies somebody is psychologically scarred emotionally traumatized for the rest of their life and that starts the cycle of justice because no one is punishing that entitled group of pranksters so the world and the slasher produces its own avenging angel to come punish that and we love to believe that the world can be fair swapping from movies to books what are some of those horror books that you recommend if if people have Finished my my heart is a chainsaw. They finished. Don't fear the reaper. What should they go yeah. to next? You know, I go back to The Shining. Stephen King's The Shining a whole whole lot. Uh, I always read that when I need a reminder of how things can work when they really really work. I think it's mm-hmm. really 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 well done. And I mean, a lot of Stephen King stuff is really well done. Really, you start off this talk talking about character being central, and that's the best thing we've learned from Stephen King. That um. You build the person to be real such that we care about them when they go into the meat grinder of the story. And if if we can just take that lesson from him, then the whole genre will be better, I think. So The Shining, let's see, I would also recommend, I guess, Clive Barker's Books of Blood. It's just wonderful to cycle through his his sticky imagination, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ter- ter- terrifying as well. Um, recently, Jim Files' experimental film, I think that that functions exactly 
that's like a it's a horn album that's firing on every cylinder really really impressive i like mike bacovin's fantastic land a whole lot i think it's from 2016 or so well it's an amusement park that gets isolated by a hurricane and people segment themselves off into tribes and have war with each other and things don't have to go bad but because people are people things go bad you know Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think from that same year possibly Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts is pretty amazing I love the way he's able to he's able to maintain three separate narratives that play off each other but braid together and each one of them moves Mm -hmm. the story forward that's really accomplished Grady Hendrix is my best friend my best friend's exorcism maybe that's 2017 2018 I love the emotional punch at the end of that novel. It's really, really effective, I think. Christopher Golden's Road of Bones, that's a recent one that really got to me. It's just it's just so it's just really fast-paced horror that never lets up. That's what I really love. I love it when it never lets up. And maybe a last one, CJ Lead, her Mave Fly, M-A-E-V-E Fly. It's coming out this year. And I guess it's pulling comparisons with American Psycho just for its depravity and brutality. And it deserves it. It's wonderfully depraved like that. But um it's just a it's just a horror novel that so so works. I am super, super impressed with Mayfly. I can't wait for people to be reading it. So for all of our listeners, that's it. That's your reading list for this coming months here <laughs> to get yourself um to get yourself over the fact that Don't Fear the Reaper will be done. I mean, again, I think there's going to be people who are finishing it in, in a sitting, finishing it so. in, yeah. because once yeah. it gets going, you can't you can't get off that ride, like you said. Yeah. I should say too, in this in the Barnes and Noble edition, yeah. there's there's a couple of extra chapters at the end that are they were cut from the original, like when Joe Monty, my editor at Saga, was helping me resculpt the novel. There was a lot of stuff that got left on the cutting room floor and. This is two of the things that got left on the cutting room floor, which I miss dearly. But um, it's I think it's cool for people to see other ways Jade and this story could have gone and been. I got to get my hands on that because I <laughs> am dying for more of this story. And we only have <laughs> one more. We have one more book with Jade, one more book yep. with Proofrock. Anything yep. you want to share on the uh, the end oh, of this trilogy? You know, I turned I turned my copy in on August 15th. So it's already, it's already in the can. And I'm currently in notes on it. And I suspect it'll come out in 2024. I don't have any dates yet. I can't say the title yet. Or else sure, sure. My, publicist, my publicist will like break through this green screen and do something terrible to me. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, so I, I wish I could announce it. I'm really anxious to. But um, but I want to let people sit with Don't Fear the Reaper for a of bit course. before, before we course. jump on the third book. And I almost, almost just it almost said the title. That was just, <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> No, I think people are going to want to sit with this. I think whether people want to sit with it or not, it's going to sit with them. That's the way I've been feeling. There's a couple uh, images up there with different impaling techniques that are uh, going to be in there for a long time. Uh, Again, thank you so much for talking with uh us. Thank you so much Uh for creating this world that we all get to live in and play in and Uh be a little bit glad we're not right there along with everyone else. Don't fear the Reaper. It's going to be out soon. Uh Thank you for talking with us. It's been a great pleasure having you here. It's been a great time talking with you. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Don't Fear the Reaper. I'm Mark. I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Jamie. Hello. Hi, buddy. (laughs) I'm coming to you from my Barnes & Noble store in Leawood, Kansas. Excellent. 
Well, we've got a couple of great books to recommend. Jamie, do you want to jump right in? Yeah, sure, I can. Absolutely. So in thinking about the Lake Witch trilogy, because this is going to be a trilogy, yeah, and I loved the first book immediately, right off the bat, My Heart is a Chainsaw just made me a believer right away. And as I read that book, I was thinking about Stephen King a lot, because of course, horror, you're going to think about Stephen King. I started my personal Stephen King journey with Firestarter. Um, and that was maybe, I think, around seventh grade. I wanted to read Carrie really bad, but my mom was pretty over overprotective. <laughs> And she did not want me to check that one out for the library. She said it was too scary. So I had to read it in bits and pieces at the library and sneak it in there. Um, and I've not really stopped reading Stephen King ever since. Carrie was a, was a pretty good second experience with Stephen King. And it really made me think of Jade in this trilogy a lot. Customers talk about not being able to put Stephen King books down or being able to put Stephen Graham Jones books down. And while I think they're both great at structure and about keeping you up reading all night and turning pages. But for me, it's really the characters. The characters are what I cannot forget. And, and Stephen King has created some really unforgettable characters over time. Just Randall Flagg, Jack Torrance, and Carrie White, hands down. Carrie White is iconic. The Lake Witch trilogy is all about this character, right? Jade. And she's a fantastic anti-hero. Um, the first book is entirely from her POV, and the majority of the book is actually her inner monologue, so you get really sucked into all of her thoughts and feelings, and we understand what makes her tick. We understand her rage, and we understand that all the, the, way, the ways the adults around her have failed her, and that's the same with Carrie White. Carrie, while a very different kind of character, um, she has big teenage emotion, maybe the biggest teenage emotions that anyone's ever had on the page. Being tied up in rage is sort of central to both of these characters, I think. So Carrie isn't just about like buckets of, of pig's blood at the prom. It dives beneath the surface. Um, it ticks a lot of the same boxes as the Lake Witch trilogy does. Um, in each of these books, we've got a lonely high school girl who is an outsider. Um, she's got a terrible parent, gossipy neighbors, school bullies, the works. There's a lot of shared themes. And Carrie is a classic of the genre for a reason. So I would pick it up. It's a short for Stephen King. Very, very short. You can read it very fast. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. Carrie is oddly the book that I have read the most times in my life. And I, like you, I read it in like sixth or seventh grade. Um, my mother was a big Stephen King fan. and had pretty much his body of work on her shelves and I was always very curious and she would say you can read this if you understand that if you don't sleep tonight you still have to go to school the next day so that was our deal and Carrie was the first one I picked up and um, I have not looked back I think it's a treasure so nice pick as usual I picked a book that's a little newer uh, this is a debut novel called Bad Cree by Jessica Johns um, it is a slow burn novel it blends horror with modern native Canadian culture it's just a perfect dessert to the meal of Stephen Graham Jones anything that he puts out is brilliant and this is just a nice little extra slice that you can consume. Uh, we follow, again, a young woman. So we've got a little trifecta going on here. Uh, her name is Mackenzie, and she is returning home to her rural town near Alberta, Canada, to confront her past. She has been assaulted 
relentlessly by increasingly bizarre nightmares. Um, most of them um, concerning crows uh, that are chasing her, attacking her, pecking at her. It's ghoulish. They seem to be connecting to an experience from her past, uh, specifically the death of her sister. And as these nightmares continue to grow and become more severe, she decides to go home to uh, maybe see what, what's going on, on top of some circumstances that lead her there. So once home, she has to contend with the heavy cloud of grief that her family is still sunk into. It plagues them in a way that is very, very touching and uh, really kind of can bring an entire family down. But she also has to confront these secrets that seem to be popping up as these dreams become more vivid, as secrets specifically related to her family's past, and get to the root of the nightmares before they drown her. The book is unsettling and somber. It explores family grief in a very interesting way, um, and it, it can be very terrifying at times. So Highly recommend Bad Cree by Jessica Johns. It's great. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pour It Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. My name is Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Jamie. You can follow my home store at BN Leewood KS. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Happy reading. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.